Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Forty years ago yesterday, the British nuclear-powered attack submarine HMS Conqueror made history and changed the course of the Falkland Islands War by sinking the Argentine cruiser General Belgrano. After the sinking, which killed 323 sailors, the Argentine Navy ceased to threaten the British Armada assembled to retake the Falklands, although air attacks by the Argentine Air Force took a grim toll on the British fleet, sinking five warships and a major container ship carrying key aircraft and war supplies. We spoke yesterday with retired Royal Navy Commander John T. Powis, who served aboard Conqueror during the Falkland Islands War as the ship's navigator. Four decades earlier to the minute, he was on the fire control party that tracked the former U.S. cruiser and sank it. He went on to command the conventionally powered attack submarine Unseen and the nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines Resolution and Victorious. He also served at the British Embassy in Washington and now does occasional consulting. We discussed the mission as well as the lasting lessons of the war. Here's our conversation. Jaunty, honor having you aboard. Thanks so very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's going to be fun. Uh, absolutely. I've been uh, waiting for a long time for this conversation, so it's a pleasure. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Jaunty, I grew up in uh, New York City. My mother was a very proud uh, colonial uh, from uh, the island of Cyprus, uh, and she was equally proud of her American heritage. So ever since I was a little kid, I remember visiting uh, Royal Navy uh, ships and indeed had visited uh, many of the ships that ended up going down to the to the Falklands. Uh, and I was also a submarine fan of the valiant uh, Churchill uh, class. And I always thought Conqueror was one of the best names uh, out there for a submarine. I was also a fan of War Spite and the history that she had, but that's beside the point. Uh, you were on the attack party uh, and in contact uh, that day. Um, and a month earlier, if anybody had told you that you were about to sink a World War II cruiser with a Mark 8 Bliss Levitt torpedo designed in 1911, you'd probably have told them, they were crazy. Um, it was the first time a nuclear uh, submarine had sank, uh, uh, had sunk a target uh, in anger. And that was one of the biggest, and it was indeed the biggest warship lost uh, in action since World War II. Why does that attack in the Falkland Islands War matter so much, especially today? Yeah, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of questions within your question. Um, but it was a very, it, it was absolutely the thing which saved the uh, the British task force, uh, the task group. Um, the Belgrano, former USS Phoenix, which is a light cruiser, uh, was of course an armoured ship built in 1938 and would have been immensely difficult for a modern warship to tackle or a modern warships to tackle. With 15 six-inch guns, she would have overwhelmed uh, any uh, British warship and those ships armed with missiles uh, would have found that the missiles bouncing off the four inch thick armor plate. And so the only way that that ship could be tackled was either by aerial bombardment, but we had no armored, armored, armored piercing bombs. And so it had to be a Tigerfish or a Mark 8 torpedo from a submarine that would strike it underneath uh, and let the water in, as opposed to uh, just peppering it as most other things would have done. And the ease with which we carried out that attack um, 
<clears throat> doesn't reflect badly, I think, on the Belgrano. It actually underlines the strength that we had uh, derived from what, it, what our earlier experiences off South Georgia, when we actually made a detection on an enemy submarine, uh, didn't get close enough to shoot at it, but that made everybody sit up and take notice. And all the way south, we were convinced that it was only a matter of time before the politicians gave up and sent it home. I mean, after, after all the, the tiresome films we'd seen of very smart British soldiers holding the flag down in various bits of the world, which used to belong to us, uh, we had sort of got used to that um, sense of decline. And uh, perhaps we were a little bit early uh, because I think we proved ourselves quite well. Um, let me uh, ask you about uh, the operation uh, itself. Uh, Chris Reeford Brown, uh, who had taken command of Conqueror just two months earlier, uh, although he was a very experienced submariner, he, he commanded the diesel boat Opossum, uh, and then uh, I think later commanded Valiant as well as the frigate Cornwall. So he was a very, very experienced commanding officer, uh, and in fact decided to use the older Mark Eight torpedo, for example, instead of this Tigerfish, uh, because he he reasoned, you know, an armored. You might might as well use a torpedo designed to sink these kind of armored ships uh, would have been a better, better choice. Um, what, what struck you as you guys executed that attack? Well, essentially, the main impression I had of how easy it was, uh, now that I'm not, it's not an overstatement, uh, we had tried to start our approach from the northern aspect, while after the Belgrano was heading south, uh, sorry, no, was heading by that stage back to the west and uh, the destroyers got in the way. Um, so in a nuclear submarine where you got bags of um, power, the submarine went deep, went underneath the Belgrano, came up again on the other side and started the approach from, well, again, I don't know, two and a half, maybe 3000 yards. By the time we actually fired, we were really quite close, probably just over 1100 yards on firing. And uh, the smoothness of the attack, I think, was largely because we had we were up against a relatively slow target. At no time, I think, did we ever see her do more than 13 knots. We had rehearsed the, the drills that we would need all the way south, both for the Tigerfish weapon, which was rather unreliable, and the Mark VIII weapon, which was extremely reliable but very old. Uh, it first went to sea in the Royal Navy about 1930. Um, and I think it was accepted into service on in 1932. Uh, so here we were with a 50-year-old weapon, although it was actually manufactured in 1943. Uh, these drills are something that we would do a great deal of. I mean, mostly uh, while alongside when all the engineers are doing their engineering stuff, all the uh, the seamen officers and the exec officers would go into the attack teacher and constantly practice and practice and practice. And there's no getting away from it. Um, understanding what everybody is about to do and knowing what you have to do next is part of a team that is working together and is on top of its problems. Uh, and there we were in a nuclear submarine where you know, maximum speed, probably about 27 knots with a towed array, which could detect things at huge ranges and a four ends full of torpedoes 
we really, uh, I wouldn't say we felt invulnerable, but we felt very, very confident. Reefer Brown has uh, said that, you know, after 13, you know, the Royal Navy trained me for 13 years. It would have been really dreary if I'd have fouled that up. Right. What a nice British understatement there. Um, and, and clearly everybody did their jobs. And you guys went uh, from one mission to another until the end of the war. Um, after the attack, there were so many conflicting messages that were coming out of London in terms of, you know, was it in the exclusion zone, outside the exclusion zone? And it seemed to sort of muddle the, 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 the rather clean accomplishment uh, that was made. What's the, what's the importance of actually communicating clearly and with less obfuscation? Because, I mean, there are you know, obviously there were reasons why the logbooks were not findable. You guys executed. I know you can't comment on that. A highly classified mission after you guys got back, which you guys were going to do before the war interrupted you. Um, you know, what, what's the importance of actually clearly communicating because even now, four decades later, the what was really one of the accomplishments of the war that was really a strategic game changer is still sort of shrouded in questions and, you know, well, were they going into the exclusion zone, out of the exclusion zone? How, how important was the communications element of it and, and the lessons learned maybe there about how to maybe do it better in the future? Well, communications, uh, without communications, you can't operate. Um, the key, I suppose, is brevity and having a very basic concept of what the Admiral wants you to do. For us in Belgrano to the south, uh, in Conqueror to the south of the TEZ, it was very straightforward. We were to sink the cruiser. Um, there was a thought perhaps we should sink the destroyers as well. Uh, but in the end, they ended up zigzagging towards us for some reason, so we didn't hang around. Uh, <clears throat> I suspect there had been an aircraft in the area as well. But no, there's no getting away from it. But as soon as you start any form of um, you know, changing plans or revising uh, earlier thoughts, there comes a time when all commanding officers at every level within an organisation need to know what their boundaries are, and they need to be then left alone to get on with it. It's a famous saying that no, uh, no attack lasts or no, no attack survives contact with the enemy. My thought really is that the, the age old saying that no plan survives contact, first contact with the enemy is one of the great truths. And it means that if you're training your officers, in particular your unit commanding officers, to know what they are supposed to be doing in the broadest sense, they are likely to have the initiative to get on with it and stop chit-chatting about who does what and whether I can use this or that weapon. Um, we decided what torpedo to use. We had a little meeting and it was a very short meeting because everybody knew what we we're gonna do. Um, and that was you know, just within the unit itself. I'm pretty sure that Sandy Woodward didn't give a hoot what torpedo we used as long as we sank the thing. You know, so the, you know, there, there needs to be guidance, but at the same time, there doesn't need to be too much guidance. Question, though, in part also is whether or not the messaging from London after the attack, right? It was, well, wait a minute, it wasn't in the exclusion zone. It turns out it was heading away. And all of this seemed to erode the importance of the of the accomplishment. Is there, um, you know, having I, I know you've looked back on that. Was there a better way to do that and, and maybe more honestly communicate? Because quite simply, the ROE had been changed 
and you were able to shoot anything in the area and it was a threat. And I think the Argentines looked at it exactly the same way. We were a warship in a war zone. Yeah, I don't forget that a lot of these um, people that were trying to criticize were doing so from a political point of view. Uh, Thatcher was not a particularly popular, despite immensely successful prime minister. And uh, <clears throat> there were plenty of people who were happy to throw stones at her. And the tedious rubbish about whether or not the, the ship was in the total exclusion zone is an irrelevance. Uh, the, if the ship was a threat, we would have attacked it. If the ship had started, if the ship, by which I mean the Belgrano, if she had started to head towards the task group, we would have been right on top of it. And we may well have decided to shoot off our own bat. Um, I can't see anybody arguing too much with that. Um, and the we should not forget the destructive power of that otherwise old and out of date ship. It would have been a real handful for modern warships with no armor and relatively light guns to have tackled her. And uh, the, the, the submarine really was the only answer. You know, my recollection is that uh, we sort of knew that and we, we certainly knew uh, what we were there to do and how to do it. And we just got on with it. Uh, again, I mean, training, training, training uh, pays off. I, I want to get to uh, cultural uh, lessons here. Uh, in a minute, but but I, I first want to get your sort of sense on broader lessons, right? In, in a sense, it was uh, the 81 Defense Review that withdrew endurance, uh, right? The Frank Report found that uh, other military cuts uh, may have precipitated the Argentine junta to conclude, look, they're not going to fight. It is an empire in decline. They withdrew their ship. They've sent a whole bunch of other signals. They don't really care about the Falklands. Uh, we can we can do this, and wars start with miscalculation. On the other hand, they also miscalculated that Margaret Thatcher would go to war uh, to retake. You know, would would travel eight thousand miles to take back islands five hundred miles off uh, the um, uh, Argentine uh, coast. Right. I mean, a lot of Taiwan similarities here, uh, in a sense, and it also changed the way the Soviet Union looked at the United Kingdom in the wake of the war. What, from your standpoint, were sort of the broader lessons that came out of this conflict that you think are, are best worth studying and absorbing? Well, one of the things that Margaret Thatcher did was she listened to the senior uh, officers, in particular, Admiral Leach, who was, I think, the chief of defence staff at the time. He might have been the first senior, I can't quite remember. Because she was being told by the politicians in the Ministry of Defence, and indeed uh, John Knott, the, uh, the Secretary of State for Defence, that this was hopeless, we would never be able to recover, uh, the whole thing was just going to you know, turn into a debacle. And it wasn't until Admiral Leach, who was able to exercise his right of access to the Prime Minister, who came up with the glorious statement that if nothing is done, if we do not try, uh, we will wake up in a different country tomorrow morning. And if ever there was truth spoken, it was that. And within three days, there were ships on their way south. Uh, Margaret Thatcher saw straight away that this was a man who knew what he was talking about. And he had the ability to describe in some detail exactly what he could do and, whether or not, and make a good statement as to whether or not this was possible. And the answer was, as we all know, uh, by the, the success, the answer was, yes, we can do it. Uh, and I think one or two people were surprised. And you've already mentioned the, the effect it had uh, outside uh, the UK in particular, 
uh, in the Warsaw Pact and other countries. So the idea that in some way we were not going to do this was a huge error on behalf of the Falklands, uh, of the Argentine uh, command team. And if only they'd waited six months, we'd have had no carrier, no amphibs, and we would really have been struggled. We'd have relied on the RAF. That would never do. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that inter-service rivalry, John T, is still uh, very alive and 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 well. But um, you know, having met Martin Withers, uh, who uh, uh, was uh, at uh, the controls of the Vulcan that bombed uh, Stanley, that was that was another honor uh, to uh, get a chance to meet him and talk to him over the years as well. Um, well within the Navy, that was discussed. Um, by some of the chaps who've been flying and the amount of fuel that was used to deliver 21 bombs that didn't really hit the runway would have given enough um, airtime for the Harriers, which each could carry three 1,000 pound bombs, but only for a little way. Uh, we'd have been able to some, run something like 300 uh, attacks. And it's quite possible that we would then have actually wrecked the runway. And a word from our sponsors, HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting in Nashville. Um, I, that certainly would be a great, uh, still a great uh, assessment uh, and, and study. Um, I, I want to shift gears and, and talk to you a little bit about culture uh, and British military culture and Royal Navy culture. Uh, in particular, because this was sort of made up on the fly, uh, right? I mean, it was a lot of uh, uh, good equipment, uh, some not so good equipment, but a lot of very, very good training, uh, ultimately. Literally one day before the invasion, the British ambassador in Buenos Aires was convinced that the attack wasn't imminent. And yet it happened on April the 2nd. Sandy Woodward uh, sail, sailed his ships from Gibraltar uh, pretty soon, within a day, if I recall, for Task Force 317. Uh, and then three days after that, the carriers uh, followed uh, and the troop ship Canberra sailed about a week later. And that was converted from a cruise liner to a troop ship for 2,500 Marines and special forces. And it left 60 hours after it had pulled, I think, into Portsmouth uh, in, a, in a cruise ship capacity. So things actually worked really fast. Um, what is it you think about Royal Navy and British military culture that allowed this to happen so fluidly and so quickly? Well, I think there's a sense of, you know, there is a task, stand up, get on with it. Um, if you're going to stand around and wait for instructions, when you could anticipate uh, the need to, I mean, it wasn't just the, um, the Canberra, uh, the QE2 was also adapted, but somewhat later. Uh, and there were other ships which were being called up from trade and converted into sort of emergency aircraft carriers. Um, the Atlantic conveyor being one of those, the, the one that was uh, destroyed by an Exocet. So there was a huge amount to be done. And I think there was an instant recognition that there was a huge amount to be done. So let's get on with it. There was still a lot of excess capacity, um, right? I mean, efficiency was important, but I don't think it had gotten the absolute best of everybody. Do you do you think that something like that is doable today? Would would the UK military do you think be able to be able to move, and the Royal Navy be able to move as quickly as it did then? 
Well, I think we need to remember just how much smaller the Royal Navy is now than it was then. Uh, not just in numbers of ships, but numbers of people as well. Although the Marines are roughly the same size as they were then, pretty much a brigade plus. The Royal Navy itself is probably down to about 28,000 people or, or something of that order. And the army, which in those days was, what, 130,000 plus 60,000 reservists. The army is now, what, 70,000-ish. And, yeah, we, we would find it difficult to produce the right numbers of qualified, trained people. And, uh, I mean, one of the problems we had, I think, was that one or two of the army units that went south were not so prepared. Um, you know, they, they had spent a lot of time um, stamping up and down the tarmac in London, um, playing music and what have you. Um, and that's a little unkind th thing to say. Um, but they certainly were not ready in the same sense that everybody else was. And I suppose part of the cultural issue, if you boil it away, is also the difference between the submarine service and the surface Navy. The submarine service, especially the nuclear submarine service, does almost no visits because getting a nuclear submarine to visit anywhere is impossible. We nearly spend, or, or we were certainly during the Cold War, spending a lot of our time chasing what was before 1982, uh, the real enemy, i.e. the Soviets. Either we were following them around or we were monitoring them during their exercises. And we were uh, for a lot of the time in their backyard uh, listening and watching what was going on. And that sort of activity hardens you up to a degree. You are used to the fact that you are going to be absolutely next to the enemy, uh, whether it's the Soviets or somebody else. And uh, that became part of the culture. And because our submarine force was relatively small, and I think the, mo the, the biggest number of nuclear submarines we, we ever had, or nuclear attack submarines, was, was 18 in 1991. Uh, and it didn't take very long after that for it to come down as the Cold War was wound up. Uh, you know, we, those 18 submarines worked very hard. And I mean, the United States submarine force at the time was well over 90, maybe even 100 boats, um, all rather less than the Soviets. And we spent a lot of time at sea. Uh, essentially, while you were stationed on a submarine, it would be pretty much two to three months off and then five to six weeks, no, so two to three months on and then five to six weeks off for maintenance. And that sort of cadence kept going all the time. So, I mean, there's one famous year when I think I met my son when he was born. I left home when he was about four or five weeks old. And I think I next saw him when he was three months old but not for very long. And I think it was eight months. He was eight months old before I actually managed to accumulate a sort of a sensible amount of time with him. And uh, that was just the way it was. Perhaps we were being overstretched, perhaps not. Since World War II, militaries have been shrinking under the guise that smaller and more capable is better than bigger and less capable. Uh, everybody, of appears to have completely forgotten the importance of bigger and more capable in, mm -hmm. in that uh, in that in that equation, um, as you said, right? I mean, had this war happened a couple of months later, uh, 
if the Argentines had been a little bit more strategic, you might not have had the capability to be able to respond. Just as if it had happened a couple of years earlier, you would have had HMS Ark Royal, which was a big deck aircraft carrier that did have phantoms, interceptors, airborne early warning. And the yeah. course of the war would have been fundamentally different at that point, given the kind of much heavier air power uh, you, you had. Um, the other thing is the number of ships that were lost. Were, were you at all stunned by those numbers? And have we forgotten that lesson? I mean, one would have thought we consumed mountains of equipment in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the Moskva has just been sunk, right? I mean, the largest ship sunk since the Belgrano at 12,000 tons, um, you know, by uh, unmanned, uh, you know, by um, missiles. Um, do, do, do you think the lessons for volume, size, people, more ships, how do we need to think about this as we're going into a higher intensity, great power world? I mean, you lost six ships in the Falkland Islands. Anything that involves the word Taiwan or Russia will mean probably more ships being lost in a fairly short order. Do, do, are we taking the right lessons and mindset from that conflict into where it is we're likely going? No, I think the main problem in 1982 was that we had thinned out our ships. Uh, the Type 42, Batch 1, Batch 2 ships were shortened by some amount, 50, 60 feet. They had relatively small magazines for their, uh, their missiles. They did not have um, a close-in anti-aircraft weapon system, which is why many of the aircraft were, were struck by bombs, because they did not have the proper when the um, I mean, the, the goalkeeper weapon we used for a while, and also the phalanx, the American phalanx system, which of course has now been knocking around for quite a long time. Uh, we simply didn't have, we, we, you know, we would have a couple of 40, 60 Bofors guns, a, um, a, a 20 millimeter Ehrlichin, uh, where if you look back to World War II, where we really understood how difficult it is to shoot down aircraft, even if they're only doing 300 knots as opposed to a fast jet. Uh, the amount of you know, anti-aircraft uh, uh, ammunition that we could release from our ships was huge. And in fact, during the Mediterranean campaign, they used to talk about a ship's endurance being governed not by its fuel, but by how much anti-aircraft ammunition it could carry. And that is something we seem to have forgotten about. And the Many of the warships uh, had inappropriate materials on board um, and made them subject to uh, catching fire. And if you looked around a submarine too, you would also find that sort of thing, but a submarine is a slightly different problem. Um, and if you compare a Type 42 in 1982 uh, with its Soviet Union equivalent, uh, one is almost enviable of the amount of weaponry that the uh, the, the Soviets were hanging on their ships, uh, how effective they were, that's a different issue. But we seem to have lost all those lessons. Um, whether it, even, even lessons, again, in the Type 42, I'm not, I'm not deliberately picking on it, it's just something that I know about. Mm. The, the firefighting system was extremely vulnerable to action damage. And that's certainly what happened in, in the Sheffield and that she lost all the ability to, uh, or most of the ability to fight fires. 
and uh, all these weaknesses, all this saving money. And it really was saving, saving pennies and tuppences on a ship that was going to take to sea extremely precious men and, of course, now women uh, to fight the war. And frankly, the ships weren't quite up to it. The people were, but the ships weren't. And if you think about the period from 82 onwards as to how much extra stuff we bolted onto our ships in order to uh, defeat this, you know, this lesson learned, which we should have remembered, not learned. Was that a scandal? Possibly. Uh, but it was certainly the only way we could afford the numbers of ships we got was to cut corners. 1982, there was still a lot of uh, folks who did remember World War II. Um, and so the notion that you would lose a number of ships in order to do an operation, maybe, I mean, I, I think people were still surprised, but maybe a little bit less surprised. Do you, how do you think people would take that kind of news today, Jonty? I mean, if, if there was, right, I mean, I think Moskva surprised people, but I, you know, two more patrol boats lost, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of curious, even as somebody who's in the public discourse, how the public would respond to that um, kind of news today. And does, you know, how, how do we need to shape our forces and our messages and our thinking accordingly, I guess would be my question. Well, it's any armed force that thinks it's going to be able to carry out uh, a mission without losing uh, people, equipment, um, and possibly even the fight itself, uh, it, it, it's, it's insane. I mean, it, it has to be something that you consider. You know, what are we going to do if it all turns to custard? You know, the answer is probably a, you know, a, an organized withdrawal, uh, which after all is what the Soviets and or the Russians rather have effectively done um, after the astonishing news that their uh, their army simply wasn't up to the up to the the problems uh, and, and and couldn't overcome the problems. I think in the West generally, and certainly my experience in the British forces, is that we do spend an awful lot of time pondering the what ifs. What are we going to do if this happens? What are we going to do if the other happens? And there's there might not be a great deal of planning involved, but there is certainly an awareness of where um, issues might lead or where issues perhaps might end. And I think that was demonstrated quite well in, in 1982. And I think some of the activities uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, 10 years later or so also demonstrated that there was a, a, a sort of a rational approach to the idea that we might lose control, or we might have to fight for control. Strange though that the uh, there was that, that dreadful experience of um, one of our boats was seized by the Iranians in a later uh, Gulf uh, unpleasantness. But you know that was it was an if it was an error, I suppose it was an error of imagination you know, what could go wrong sort of approach. But certainly that's the sort of thing we spend an awful lot of time pondering. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. And I'm absolutely honored to have uh, celebrated this
historic moment uh, with you. Um, and uh, I have to say Conqueror is one of the finest names uh, for uh, any warship, especially a nuclear-powered attack submarine. And I would point out to our audience, if you're ever in the United Kingdom, you have to uh, visit uh, the Royal Navy's Submarine Museum in Gosport. Uh, I urge everybody to visit it. You can actually visit uh, Chris Reeford Brown's uh, stateroom, uh, which is in the museum. And you can also uh, admire uh, not only uh, Conqueror's uh, Jolly Roger uh, flag, because I, I have to admit, you're the first guys to really have earned it in a long time uh, in, in the good old fashioned way of doing it. Uh, and then of course, you can also check out the Holland one, uh, which is the world's only surviving Holland submarine, which was submarine number one in the Royal Navy. Jaunty, absolute honor and pleasure uh, and look forward to welcoming you back on the program in the future. Thanks so much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.